It's the Productized Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you, as always, for tuning back in today. Got a really good conversation for you today. I'm talking to my friend, Jane Portman. She is the co-founder of userlist.com. That's a SaaS product for SaaS companies, basically. It's, a, it's an email, or not just email, but a messaging product uh, with some automation stuff and some, some pretty cool stuff for, for lifecycle emails and messages for users of SaaS products. But Jane is also the host of the popular UI Breakfast podcast. And so this was a, a wide-ranging uh, interview. It's probably a little bit different from some of the recent interviews that I've been posting here on the feed. So we're going to talk uh, kind of the the inside game on running a SaaS business in in the early to kind of just past the early stages. You know, UserList has, has been around for, for over two years and her and her co-founder, Benedict, they've, they've gained some pretty good traction. And so it's kind of exciting. And they just... Re- release some some pricing updates and we talked about positioning and and marketing and onboarding for that SaaS product and also making the transition from uh, full-time consultant or part-time consulting into full-time focus on their SaaS product together, which they've they've made that transition this year in 2020 and then uh, kind of crazy timing with the pandemic coming around. So we, we talked all about that, but then I definitely wanted to spend the, a large portion of this interview talking behind the scenes of what it's like to run a popular growing podcast. It, it has received over a million downloads at this point and she's had a, over 160 something episodes doing all sorts of interviews, how she runs sponsorships on the, on the podcast and how that has helped grow her audience and keep in touch and also grow the uh, the audience and customer base for her products. So so yeah, a lot of uh, kind of inside baseball on this one. Some really good insights as always from Jane Portman. Here you go. Enjoy. All right, Jane Portman, how are you doing? Doing good. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Yeah, so um, so I think, actually, I forgot. I, I think that you're, this is your second time back on this podcast, right? It might be, yeah. Yeah, I think you're on in one of the earlier episodes, and people can go back to that. But a lot has happened in, in the last couple of years for, for you and your business and products and everything. So we're going we're gonna to get right into it. I think today's conversation will be a little bit different from some of the other ones that I've had on here recently. Uh, you were one of the first well-known and and popular people doing productized consulting there for a while, but you've you've certainly made the turn into into SaaS products with uh, with UserList. So you know we we won't do the whole backstory on UserList because you've been on like startups <laughs> for the rest of us and and other podcasts, kind of giving the the startup story on that. But I would like to get kind of an update on it. I mean, for for those who aren't familiar, what's what's kind of the the, the quick you know elevator pitch on, on what what UserList is. Sure. So UserList is a tool for sending lifecycle messages to your SaaS users, such as behavior-based email and in-app messages. We've been out for two and a half years, and especially the last year has been great. We've been gaining traction. And we, we've just, like, barely a few hours ago announced our small $9 starter plan which means we're essentially opening the floodgates for all small new businesses out there. And we couldn't be more thrilled. So that's a big update, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah, I know. We were just talking, like, I just heard that today. And, and that's, that's pretty exciting. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, like, I definitely want to ask about your pricing. We'll get into that in just a minute. And then, of course, we're going to spend a good chunk of this conversation also talking about your UI breakfast podcast which you I think you're up to like 167 episodes which is really impressive thank you and I want to I want to get some of the behind the scenes on that but you know what's what I'm curious about with user list right now is you said you're you're two and a half years in and I'm kind of curious about that I, I don't know if I would even call you guys like early stage anymore that you're like just post early stage or something like like this early traction phase? What, what is it like at, at this point right now for, for UserList? I wonder what kind of angle we can take in, in describing this. I think this, is, this has been a super long-term play in terms of marketing, getting exposure in the community, getting the word out. And it finally feels like, I think since basically around last fall, it was the first time we went to MicroConf and we felt like people know the name of UserList even more than they do us for the first time. Before that, we had to do the speech, like explain what it does. And now 
now it's finally out. And uh, we've also been, myself and my co-founder, Benedict, we've been full-time on that since January. So we've been going full throttle, building new stuff and launching important things like this free plan and in-app messages. So it feels now that finally the pieces of the puzzle are sort of coming together. But the sales cycle for our type of industry is still super long. So we like people probably have maybe like up, up to years between they hear about us and between the use case for us. So let's say we announce a new plan today. This means that we will have new, <laughs> new people on that plan, not probably not even today, but when they need it. So we're all in this slow but very exciting game of building following. But it's, it's pretty much self-sustained, so we're not pumping in cash anymore. It's not like it's paying our bills on full, but we're hoping to get there sometimes sooner rather than later. Yeah, actually, I, I do want to ask you about that just real quick. That you mentioned that you, you and Benedict, your co-founder, uh, have, have both switched to working full-time on UserList, I believe, at the, at the start of this year in, in 2020. Is that right? That's correct. And I forgot which podcast I heard you on, but you... You had a really good conversation about that switch. But what I'm curious about there is that is the transition that so many people are are gunning for. Like, how can I leave behind consulting or leave behind a job and switch to product income full time? I'm, I'm curious, like when you guys made that switch, was user list revenue, like your monthly recurring revenue, was it up to a point at, at that time, January 2020, that could like really fully sustain both of you or like replace your income or did you have like savings that that built up so, sort of a runway that you can you know make that leap definitely not making the living from it and not yet either at the moment we have been doing consulting all the way for those last two years and it's been challenging to come by, like to mix together mix clients work and a user list but what really made us switch was that um, feeling of uh, getting traction and being known in the community, like getting the product in good shape. And it's not the first SaaS product for either of us. And we know how slow it can be, And but it's not an experiment. It's definitely something that we intend to seriously grow. The pace of growth might differ, but uh, we are absolutely intended to grow it to legitimate amount of uh, MRR so it can sustain both of us. So we the, the terms were such, we're going to do that for six months and then see where it takes us. Maybe we will take a little bit more consulting, but hopefully, and things have been sort of in that tune, hopefully we will not go back to consulting and we'll keep going uh, full time on this. But yeah, general advice to anyone, don't do that. <laughs> like it, it is really scary. Because it's it's very bad to be desperate for money. So unless you have good savings and serious intent, it's much better to keep consulting on the side and keep you know the slow game going instead of having to do to make desperate decisions. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I, I think that you guys did it the, the right, very, very smart way because you had two factors going for you. You know, it sounds like you, you were both in in healthy financial situations going into this, but then also the the business was clearly showing traction. You know, you had some level of revenue and, and traction that that gave you that confidence that this is definitely growing where we intend to keep growing this. It's not just a an idea, an experiment anymore. I would say the first $1,000 of MRR was brutally slow. Like, <laughs> and uh, given all the credibility, our existing audiences, the amount of podcasts we've been on, it's been still slow because uh, the friction for adopting a tool like this is it's pretty high. That's been one of the uh, surprises, one of the big learnings from from running it. The, the positive yeah, learnings I, would I be that yeah. <laughs> I, I relate to that firsthand myself with Process Kit. For sure. the, the positive surprise was how much expansion revenue is going to be awesome. Like it came as a surprise. It was not in my business plans originally when we started it. Interesting. We we do have a significant number of our growth uh, resulting from our SaaS customers growing their user account. So that's really amazing. So I know that not everyone in my audience here is is totally in tune with like SaaS metrics, but when you when you talk about expansion revenue, you're like on top of the base plans, things that your customers are doing cause their price to go up. And I guess commonly that's like, you know, they're adding users or, or team, like th their team is growing. But I think in user list, it's 
is it like contacts or something like yeah, that? Yeah, our basic metric is number of your users because you, you send things to your users. So the end users are this axis for measuring. And expansion revenue can be both upsells, but it can be linear growth. Like in our case, it's just like linear, straightforward. They, they grow, we grow sort of relationship. Got it. Just one more point on the switch to from you know part-time to full-time focus on this business. I mean, I do think it's worth pointing out that at least what I've seen both personally and from other people making that switch, it's still going to require some level of like a pay cut, like a personal pay cut and a, and a little bit of a, a leap of faith. Again, with the signals that, that you're making a, a, a smart decision here, but you know, I, I do see a lot of people who just keep holding out and holding on to this consulting gig or holding on to a job until their bootstrapped side project literally equals what they've been making as a full-time employee and often like a six-figure employee. And that's just not realistic, right? Mm-hmm. Like at, at some point, you just really need to kind of, you know, be willing to kind of go back to, to fully bootstrapping to, to really make that switch happen, right? Yep. Yep. Definitely. And so then I'm curious, like, after you made the switch, so like into right now, I know obviously soon after January 2020, we're hit with this global pandemic. But but I I guess putting that slightly aside for a second, has the full-time focus for you and Benedict, have, have you seen a really meaningful impact for the business? Absolutely. We have... First hand, we, we've got this amazing freedom of mind and lack of client deadlines. It was like number one. We now can work at our own pace, um, do what we need to do. And of course, like we can build whatever we want at the speed of a rocket ship, but uh, we can move along. And it took a while to get adjusted, to find right tools, right processes, uh, to keep this going more in the more organized way. But I think now we've just hit the stride and the, the, the last month has been really good, even though like, I can't say that. So basically sitting at home and uh, just churning out great things for users, that's what uh, we do. Yeah, yeah, cool. Let's talk about this price change. So up until today, so we're recording this here at the end of April. I think this podcast will probably come out in sometime in June. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I've got, a, I've got a queue that that's coming up before that, but. So up until now, your base plan was 49, and then it goes up to 99, 229 after that. And so now you're interesting a, a nearly free plan, but it's a $9 a month plan. Can you, can you talk through like what was, what was sort of the thinking behind this? Sure. Well, any freemium is, of course, a marketing play. So it's a way to draw in more users. And we have been entertaining this for, well, of course, we've been entertaining this for ages, but seriously entertaining this after the crisis hit. So it definitely is the case that there will be more SaaS businesses who will be on tight budget, but nonetheless uh, starting out in these hard times. And uh, we would love to get them on board early on. And this expansion revenue sentiment, it's the exact play we want to do here. We want people to come on board early, enjoy like our sort of micro investment at the early stage so that then they grow and uh, become our users at higher plans. And what's the most important thing is that we got into business to help bootstrap founders like ourselves, small to medium-sized SaaS businesses. And this jibes perfectly with this kind of spirit. We've also been considering whether to do it in full feature set or whether we should limit anything on the free right. plan, on the early plan. Like we we got together, we put together a table with decision-making criteria and stuff. And the criteria said that we should do, let's say, in-app messaging starting from the $99 plan. And we decided on that, but it felt wrong. After like two weeks, I was, this doesn't jibe with what we do. <laughs> so let's let's absolutely reverse this game and introduce a small plan and... Uh, and just let all the features uh, av- make them available from from the smaller plan, so that people can use our full feature set to grow. And it's I great really when, like that. <laughs> yeah, it's great that when something you do, it jibes not only with the economics and the logics, but also with the reason you're in business. And that that is such a great fit for us. Totally, totally. I, I really like that the the thinking there, and and. And so far, like currently in, in my businesses too, it's basically set up 
like that all features are included and then the the difference between plans is kind of like the quantity or the or the expansion and that's basically how you're doing it here i think that mm-hmm. this base this nine dollar a month plan is up to 100 users which makes a lot of sense because it's like you know we see that all the time it's like oh just the other day i had to temporarily upgrade my hrefs because i wanted one feature that they stuck into their 200 dollar a month plan you know and then i and then i quickly downgraded it like the, the <laughs> next month after i didn't need that feature anymore you know and it's like you don't want to deal with that kind of stuff yeah and there are also some reasoning why it's not freemium exactly and it's not because of those nine dollars that we want to get but because we are in the email industry and we put together for the free plan, we put together a document outlining the steps, uh, the, the gates we need to put up in order to protect like our business from spam abusers and other things. And the $9 fee seems to be working perfectly for that. <laughs> it's, it's super small, but not zero. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Was, was spam, is that the main consideration in not going to fully free? Yes. And there are a couple more. The other one is upgrading a cardless user can be very painful so we want them to get on this tripwire purchase with the nine dollars and then we can uh, smoothly upgrade them when the user account grows as opposed to trying to solicit their credit card and what do we do do we stop their messaging going out like it's very very sensitive at that point like because their businesses depend on our uh, functioning product Right, right. Yeah, it, it could literally be like a one-click upgrade. And and then, like you say, I, I guess maybe there's some flexibility in like if they go over their limit, but they haven't fully upgraded yet, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, you can kind of smooth that that transition. Yeah. Very nice. I wanted to touch on your positioning because I, I know that you've done a lot of work on that uh, early on, you know, really positioning it for SaaS products. And then even within that, as I as I understood it, you know, correct me if, if I'm wrong or if this has changed, but User list, so it's like a messaging tool for SaaS companies to message with their users, and it's strictly post-purchase, like people who've, who've become customers of, of your SaaS product, that's when user list starts to communicate with them. Is, is that right? That's exactly right. Got it. How, how had, like, have you worked out that positioning? I know you've done some like work on that, and, and what were some of the changes and kind of realizations you, you've made on that? We set out from day one to uh, approach to only work with users who are the customers. But it took us like a year and a half to figure out how to describe that to people so that they instantly get it. Because we also do, what we do can be called email automation. So we would start out with a pitch saying, we do email automation for SaaS. And everybody would start comparing us to MailChimp or Drip. And this is just entirely different tools I mean, they work in the similar manner, but they, they're for marketing and we do more of behavior-based lifecycle stuff. So last year, about a year ago, we did this positioning exercise uh, based on the book by April Dunford. And there's a huge blog post uh, with outlining the steps and showing like the tables we put together. So maybe you can link to that in the show notes instead of me reciting it. What we arrived at yeah, is... Yeah, it's a good uh, one. I, I read it when you <laughs> came out with it. That's good. Oh, what we arrived at is that we should call ourselves customer messaging because based on the features we can and cannot offer, and we also figured out that most likely our audience is um, small SaaS founders, bootstrap SaaS founders. And in that regard, things have changed since last year. We have figured out the angle, but we were sort of a little bit scared to go full on on the small business angle because everybody says you shouldn't do that. Everybody says like, you should charge more, aspire for bigger customers, you know, uh, grow your MRR. But I read a book by Simon Sinek this year, a Start With Why and then The Infinite Game, the other one. I found them hugely useful and aspiring. And he says that those businesses succeed who have a bigger purpose than just making money. And for us, that bigger purpose was helping bootstrap founders like ourselves. And uh, that we've been more open about that since that over the last few months. And it also explains why what we have been doing in marketing works when we try to, let's say, share our story and be open. But when we try to compete on educational content with some giants like customer.io Intercom, we lose because they have a hundred uh, people teams putting together some amazing guys. Like we can't, we can't possibly do that without resources. 
but we can be out competing them on that bootstrap vibe of the idea that we understand the needs of a small founder. So we've become more straightforward with that. And it's just such a pleasure to directly, again, align your messaging and your goals and your business purpose. Yeah, totally. And so like what other things like when it comes to, so from your positioning to your like marketing messages to the things that you're doing for marketing, I know you're doing like a lot with podcasting, like on your own podcast, but also you know, you're, you're going on a lot of other, other podcasts. Hey, you're on a podcast right now. like other things when it comes to marketing like how have you kind of tied together that positioning it's that it's for bootstrapped uh SaaS. i guess it's not only for bootstrapped companies but you know for SaaS companies and and how is that all kind of tied together with how you're acquiring new trials new new customers well podcasting is more of a medium that uh we enjoy and uh, it's not just me benedict also runs a show together Yep. It's called Slow and Steady, so you should totally check it out with Brian Ray, and they talk about building it's user lists. one of list. my other uh, favorite, favorite bootstrapper podcasts. Oh, great. Into. Oh, great. So yeah. I, I sometimes I'm envious that I don't have a chance to talk about user lists that often uh, on public, <laughs> because Benedict has a chance to talk about this every week, literally. So we enjoy this medium, and um, talking, appearing on other shows from time to time has been part of our marketing strategy oh well but other than that the podcast for me your breakfast podcast has been more of a way to learn from some awesome people to have meaningful conversations with them to make connections in a good way and um, over the years it just grew into such a thing that just lives on its own sort of like it it would be cruel to kill it because we we have really good numbers and just crossed a million downloads in uh, in March. So it's been going on for five and a half years by now. Yeah, sweet. All right. I, I really want to dive into that in just a second. I, <laughs> I think my only other my only other question about user list right now is your onboarding process. That's sort of something that I'm currently focused on as we record this. I'm 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 like heading into a big overhaul or improvement of, of my onboarding process for process kit. I'm curious, like what what have you learned in, and especially since UserList, the the product is sort is sort of there to facilitate a lot of SaaS companies onboarding process and messaging with with users. So, I'm curious, like what are some of the best practices, but also what do you, what do you guys do with with UserList when it comes to, you know, like well, first of all, like, do you do actually I see the the button here. You do some booking of demo calls. How does that play into the the trial process? How do you nurture trials before they've converted? Yeah, how do you approach that kind of stuff? I just wrote a huge article on that, uh, <laughs> outlining the exact steps um, a few weeks ago. So if we recap the principles we use is that, well, we're pretty opinionated on that. And part of that is because I'm a UX consultant myself by trade. So I'm not a fan of like tool tips and uh, walkthroughs and everything that like distracts you from, from the product itself. So when the user gets on board, they just see one welcome video from us. And the purpose of this welcome video is to solely establish uh, the friendly vibe instead of trying to educate them at once. What like the most important work is done in the background. We we have a huge knowledge base, not huge, but a very reasonably sized quality knowledge base. And we do have an onboarding sequence sent out via user list. But in the ideal world, we would prefer to not send anything to the user. So it all is tuned such a way that we use behavior data to skip on irrelevant tips. So we have like an onboarding with, let's say, five messages. And if, if this integration has been already established, we just don't send this one. If they already are composing campaigns, we don't send another one. And a big part of what we do is also suggesting onboarding calls. And we don't do that many of them. So people don't really take up on them every day. Maybe that will change with the free plan. Let's see. But so far, so good. These onboarding calls, they're also baked in into the sequence. So we offer, like on day two, we offer a onboarding call with founders. So we prefer to offer personal help when it's needed the most. And we also learn a lot. It's like a form of customer research. And... Um, like our goal is really to interfere less and uh, so far so good and it might have been different if we had a different kind of product but in our industry 
there is friction every single clutch point. Like the yeah. success journey, it's enormously long from making the integration like with the developer, jumping into code, then setting up your messages. It's really hard to enforce the person to do something. So our goal is more to inspire them with some samples, uh, with some templates, with some success stories. Uh, so maybe when they get inspired, they can jump in and do the work. Otherwise, you can like you can take the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. <laughs> Just a minute to tell you about Process Kit. If your operation needs to become more efficient and more predictable so that your team never lets anything fall through the cracks, then it's time to implement Process Kit. Process Kit is process-driven project management software made for powering client services businesses. It's especially designed with productized services in mind. Create powerful SOPs with built-in if-this-then-that automations, and then use those processes to power all of your repeatable projects. Whether you're managing a pipeline of new clients onboarding to your service, or tracking weekly deliverables, sales proposals, marketing assets, or admin work, Process Kit is your team's place for getting it all done, but more importantly, done right. Use our powerful Zapier integration to hook Process Kit into all of your other systems. And if you'd like expert help with improving your processes and automations, ask about our Process Kit implementer service. Request your free demo and trial at processkit.com. Right, right. I mean, I'm definitely, I, I've been dealing with a lot of that with Process Kit because it's the same sort of idea that it just, it does require a lot of work to set up processes, set up the automations, connect Zapier, do whatever you need to do to, to really implement it mm -hmm. in your business. And I would, and, and I've, <laughs> I've set myself up on email automation tools as well. And, and that's been like month long projects to just get up and running, right? I've heard you, you found love with uh, customer.io and it's indeed a great tool. <laughs> I know. I'm, I, I wasn't going to mention it because I know you guys sort of consider them competitors. Oh, it's all right. I mean, the, they have a, a like a radically different pricing. Their base plan is one hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, <laughs> that is different from a nine dollar plan. <laughs> I've been bouncing around, you know, with with the email tools. I've I've literally bounced like from Drip to Mailchimp to ConvertKit to ActiveCampaign, like back to Drip, and then to Customer.io, and I. I think I'm I'm solid for, for a while. I literally least, so. have your words about everyone dumping down email automation tools. It's like tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> your tweet, yeah, like uh, not like we are offended, but indeed, um, you could say that user list is exactly dumping down <laughs> email automation. But we are hoping that we are doing that well because we know who exactly we're doing that for. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, you're really optimizing it for, for the SaaS use case, right? The, yeah. Like yeah. converting <laughs> trials to customers and the lifecycle. And I, I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I mean, you being a, a you know a, an amazing designer and UX person, it really shows. And I, I think that goes a long way because like, honestly, I've, I've used like all those different tools and I would get so frustrated even when it's, even when it does everything that I need it to do, if the interface is terrible and I'm just frustrated the whole time, I just don't want to pay for it. That's just how I am. I, I feel you. I, I think uh, and, and our like people who get in touch with us, they confirm that the whole market of tools like this, it's, it's super crowded, but there is no clarity on what things do because there are so many words used to describe what we do, what other like tools do. And... There is a mix of features like messaging, one-way messaging, two-way messaging, support, automation, all kinds of things. And they they come together in different <laughs> different combinations, different tools. And if we have uh, overall better education about ourselves and about our competitors, we're all going to win. We just want to have clarity about the market. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, let's talk about UI Breakfast. So UIBreakfast.com, that has been your personal site for forever. and I mean, you know, you've had that site for a while that used to be like your productized consulting website and everything and, and your personal blog. But I guess it's been, what, like two years or, or so you, you've been doing this podcast. Is that right? The podcast has been out since 2014. So it's uh, five and really? a half years. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't realize it's been that long. I guess that's that's what it takes to make things uh, work. <laughs> <laughs> So you're doing, you know, lots of interviews. So are, is it coming out every week? Is that right? Yeah. And 
it's been changing with with time and it, the first episodes went out in in the fall of 2014 then the next year was sort of like once in a blue moon kind of just publishing whenever i feel so and then i got on the publishing train in 2016 and for a couple years have been super consistently publishing every week and that's when it started to ramp up the sponsorships came along and stuff and then in 2018 I got pregnant with my third child and uh, it was obvious that I couldn't support this weekly publishing schedule and I was about to sunset it or put it in a pause but my friend suggested well maybe you could just publish it uh, less frequently and for the last couple of years it's been going out every two weeks okay but since January uh, I decided, well, shall I sunset it or shall I double down it on it? Because it's either one could work. And I decided to turn on the weekly schedule again. And um, it's been weekly again for the last few months. Yeah, awesome. And so the focus over there is, who, like, who are you kind of seeking out as guests for the podcast? Oh, it's, I'm so excited to be talking to you about this. Like, I don't really get to talk <laughs> about the show. I just get to talk on the show, but not about the show. Yeah. The angle, well, UI UX is the original angle product strategy. But since I'm definitely a SaaS person myself, then when I come across people who are interested from a SaaS, SaaS standpoint related to the business of SaaS, I also try to bring them along. And... There is a mix. I get a ton of inbound um, guest suggestions like every day. Some of them I take on. So a number of people that I have on the show, I would never find myself, especially amazing. Uh, my favorite category is the upcoming book authors because what, what their publishers do, they would rake popular podcasts and suggest them as guests. So that's how I got a couple uh, really amazing guests lately and not just lately, but over the years. Other than that, I try to find people now community who have very niche knowledge on some topic and try to talk to them about that. So it's not about getting famous names, even though famous names don't hurt, of course, but it's more about finding interesting people, smart people, because there are a ton of them who don't necessarily have a huge audience. I mean, they can come from right. absolutely different background. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, this is one of my biggest questions that I had for you is, is about how you find guests and how you prepare for them. We'll, we'll get into that in, in a second. But, you know, I, I started this podcast back up this year. Um, in in mm-hmm. 2020, it, it went on like, I don't know, like a two-year hiatus because, frankly, I got burned out on, on finding guests every single week. And then I just let it go. And so that was one of my biggest hesitations with starting it back up this year was how am I going to keep a continuous steady flow of, of guests? And Right now, I'm still in that early batch of folks that I that I just happen to know. I mean, you're you're one of them. I I know your story, and and I was happy to invite you back on the podcast. But it is much harder to get really great guests who you don't really know much about them. And I'm sure we're the same in that. Like, we, like I don't want to bring on guests who I like. I I just don't want to bring someone on who's not going to be interesting for for me or for my audience. And and I they. they it requires some background research before they come on. Like, how do you kind of uh, manage that workload? If I had unlimited free time, I would absolutely happily go and find dozens of amazing guests because interesting people are all over the internet and start, like, you can start with uh, one designer. Like, let's say I have, I don't have too many designer designer friends, but some I do. So I would, let's say, come out uh, and explore their Twitter feed or their connections and see who they work with. And then I would research the person's public profile. So for almost everyone can be a good guest, unless if they have something to talk about. And we would love to have some proof. So one proof would be reasonable articles, uh, books. And ideally, if you want to have like close to 100% confidence, then you'd be better off finding some public talk because YouTube is full of them you'd be better off finding a video with them and that can be a good understanding of how they feel on air if you're afraid to invite just random people on your show. So there are different ways of validation. And usually I would come across a very interesting article and then I would like, oh, I want to talk about that on the show. And then I would reach out to the author. And uh, what I love about reaching out is that inviting people to be guests, it's always a pleasure. It's not like cold email or anything. It's cold, but it's absolutely 
wonderful. They always come back happy and uh, there is no, absolutely no friction in getting people on yeah. board usually. <laughs> and that's such a pleasant process. It's a gift. Yeah, it's, it's genuinely a win-win, right? <laughs> yeah. And then you get to have a meaningful conversation with them. So it's it's a very uh, mutually beneficial thing. So that's enjoyable, definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm sort of the same way. I, I, I look for topics or interesting threads first, and then I invite the person on, especially when it's someone who's not as well known. I'm, I'm just looking for something that they're doing a little bit differently, a little bit unique, and, and that's a good storyline to, to jump off from. And, and also now I'm working with Will King, who's helping me out with some of the guest research and recruiting, where he's doing some of that up, up front background research. And then he's giving me like a, like a brief about them for me to like, you know, confirm, yep, this, this person looks good to, to invite. Like, what does your team look like in terms of, you know, keeping the, the production schedule up? Um, how are you doing editing? But is anybody else helping you out with like the guest research or background or prep? No, it's just me. And since I have a lot of inbound uh, guest requests, I don't spend that much on research. And it's usually vice, like um, I would, uh, it's like a pleasant hobby to find guests and it's not really troublesome. So that's me doing that. And since January, I hired Podcast Motor by Precute. So they've been doing my editing and that really cleared up a lot of my load <laughs> on that front. Yeah, they're, they're one of the great uh, productized services out there. We, we've been, I think Bootstrap Web might be their I customer think so. number one or customer number two, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I could have probably paid a little extra and make them put together the show notes, but I take special pride in my show notes because I like to make them informative for my mailing list, even though even if they don't have a chance to listen. Because typically it's a collection of links on the topic, interesting articles. So it's not like I put the links in, whatever the mentioned is. And I also try to make an explanation what that is. And it's also a good chance to sort of leave um, back, leave again through the conversation. So it's it's kind yeah, of pleasant. Awesome. So I don't delegate that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. I don't I don't write my show notes. <laughs> I, I probably should, but but I mean, is that are is your podcast these days? Is that really your primary? I mean, it must be like your your primary audience connection. Like, I mean, I know you you write articles sometimes, but like, is that your the way that the people who really follow you tune into your newsletter and everything? That's their primary way of keeping a pulse on what you're up to. Yes, I do have a wonderful audience in Mailchimp. So with the newsletter I have, the the audience is about eight thousand people. And I don't make I don't do anything these days to grow it, so it's kind of organically fluctuating. Uh, but around that number for the last couple of years, yeah. What they receive in their inbox is weekly podcast episodes. But whenever I have something to say, let's say a birthday announcement, or like I have a new business, or like sort of or new article or year in your review, I can always get back to them. And uh, since they've been receiving podcast episodes every week, it's not a cold email list. <laughs> It's definitely yeah. very warm. So unfortunately, I'm not blogging particularly for UI Breakfast because I'm blogging mostly for UserList. But nonetheless, that audience is is super crucial to me. I, I really love the fact that I have these people. Yeah, for sure. And so you mentioned over a million downloads, which is which is amazing. As I'm looking at the website right now, I think it's like 167 episodes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the growth? Like, were there any milestones or or certain things that happened like was it changing the frequency of the episodes getting certain types of guests like anything that just sort of like clicked where you saw inflection points in the in the growth of the listenership it's been pretty smooth over the years and 2016 was the year when it started to click together more because in 2016 i generally speaking just did more things out there and i got consistent with the publishing schedule so consistency is when and then um, just, uh, you know, growing your list, I think, uh, growing my list also coincided with some podcast growth. And uh, then I think the, sometime later, the podcast kind of outgrew the mailing list, I think. <laughs> oh. Not in terms of numbers, but in terms of being uh, successful and, and things like that. I've been changing up the format a little bit. And key, one of the key things was uh, putting a topic onto each episode. That was pretty early. So that was uh, an important but early decision. And then I introduced a Blitz questionnaire for the guests. It lasted for a year or two. 
I was asking sort of icebreaker questions, the same five questions to everyone who was in the show. And then I ran a survey to my list and everybody says, well, this gets really boring. And I was like, oh no, I should just shut everything down. I, I've been working yeah. so hard that I like it. But then um, I kind of pulled myself together and um, listened to that. And the two primary pieces of feedback were, let's skip on the Bliss questionnaire and get through the foam straight to the beer kind of <laughs> sentiment. So I did that. And uh, the other one was to strive for shorter episodes. The ideal length is about half an hour. And I often exceed that, but I always strive for something about half an hour. People want to be okay, able cool. to finish episodes in a smaller sitting. And I do my best to get the guests warmed up before the recording. So when we hit record, it's more productive and we get that stride faster. Because everything interesting usually is always the last 20 minutes. No matter what the episode looks yeah, like, yeah. like <laughs> the last 20 or 10 minutes is the most exciting stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've we've cruised right past the thirty minute mark here on this one. But mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so I have I have a bunch of questions to unpack all that that you were just saying. So I'm I am a subscriber of, of your podcast, and I listen to it. I'm probably one of the subscribers that that you probably don't like. Like I, I dip into it like once every several weeks when I when the interviewee seems like someone I'm interested in. So I haven't been up on all the different changes in your format. But when you, when you say a topic for every episode. Do you mean a topic with the guest or something that like a topic that you're talking about before the, you go to the conversation? Yeah, the, the uh, so I find a guest and then we decide on a narrow angle that we'll be talking about. There are other shows out there will have like, oh, this is episode 150 with Brian Castle and that would be it. Like, Right. In our case, we want to talk about, uh, like, let's say, productized consulting with Brian Castle, or even more, like, something more narrow with uh, Brian Castle. So we would do that. So people, one one way they can get interested is about the name of the guest, and the other one, if the topic is relevant to them. For example, we had some really interesting conversations about naming brands last week, and um, I don't know, behavior-based design. Yeah, and that's really helpful when, especially when the guests are not as well known. It's like I, I, I want to tune in for the topic. You know. Yes, definitely. And uh, since the topic of design in general is pretty broad, uh, the topic of UI UX is broad. Like you can talk about icons, microcopy. <laughs> you can talk about uh, all types of user research, any stage of the flow. Then there is SaaS, and there is a whole angle of different SaaS topics. So. There's never shortage of those. And uh, it's super interesting to learn myself. Like I learned a ton from, from my awesome guests. Yeah. So the, the other thing, and then I just wanted to touch on sponsorships real quick. Um, but the, you mentioned that you did a survey. I, I, I've sent so many surveys to my audience over the years about different products that I'm working on and content, but I've never, like stupidly, I've never surveyed them about my podcasting. And one of the hardest things about podcasts, I'm sure you, you've seen this, maybe you have some insight, is like running a podcast is one of the hardest things to get feedback on. I feel like the, the audience is generally pretty silent. Like I'll, I'll get comments and some email replies and tweets and stuff here and there, but most people are tuning in on their podcatcher and... And that's, that's it. it. They're <laughs> they're just out there, and then, and then maybe you see them at a conference, and they oh, happen to so know like true. everything about your life. But like, <laughs> like yeah. how do you deal with that? Like, you know, how how do you get the audience feedback? And I guess you used the survey. But well, else? one thing, if you're lucky to have a mailing list, you can survey them and talk to them there. Well, but not every podcaster has a mailing list for sure. So I guess the recipe to success is to have one uh, somehow to start building it uh, sooner rather than later. And then you can hope for uh, some mentions on Twitter. Let's say you have a Twitter account for your show. You publish episodes there and you would mention your guests so that your guests would hopefully retweet those. Um, like, I wouldn't count on that as a massive growth uh, thing, but such kind of growth definitely happens. So they would retweet. And then when people want to share the episode, hopefully they will be able to find your Twitter handle and mention you. So that's a way to see what like what episodes resonate more but that's still super inactive like <laughs> it's definitely yeah. not a source of all-time truth and what's worse 
is that iTunes re reviews can be negative. And that can be super hard on you because you work hard. And then you come in there and somebody says, oh, she has such an awkward interviewing style. Or what's worse? Uh, this, uh, like, the host was great, but, you know, the, the guest was, uh, was, what was it? He behaved badly or something. So, like, one star. Uh, like, why? <laughs> yeah. Like, who are these people? What, like, they really have nothing better to do than leave a one-star review? Uh, probably. But over time, as the episode, the, the show grows, you become more confident. The number of positive reviews grows. Also, one handy tip is to ask your guests for leaving a review. And since they're on this, like, positive note of receiving a podcast appearance, they might actually do that. So it's a good way to to grow that trend. Well, there are different types of engagements. Like you can ask uh, what, what it started for the rest of us are reading aloud their reviews and somebody else is doing that. Right. I'm not because my yeah, production... I haven't been doing like enough <laughs> uh, attention on, on reviews. I should yeah. do more. Generally speaking, my production process is uh, kind of time agnostic. Like I usually record an episode and then goes in production and I don't put any up-to-date information in it before it goes live. So I wouldn't spend extra time updating the show with like this snippet of audio that has the recent reviews. It would be quite quite hard technically for my flow. So that's another reason why yeah. I didn't do that. This has been like a pet shiny object idea that I've had forever that I haven't been able to do, but I would love the ability to have like a like a real-time audio clip that i can insert on all of the episodes in my feed like a you snippet <laughs> snippet variable or something yeah yeah and, and like i've i've spent an embarrassing amount of time like really looking into this idea and thinking about doing it but i, I never really did but yeah like if, if if i were able to like publish you know so i'm coming out with my interview shows every week but then at the first two minutes are like a live update of what what I'm up to, or or it's like a live sponsor that only chose to sponsor the month of June, you know, mm -hmm. and so so they get they get aired on all episodes in my feed for the month of June, but then that goes away. Like it, I I think there are some tools out there that are sort of doing that, but not quite the way that I want it. So I don't know. <laughs> if this helps, well, since we're talking about technical like details, um, the, I do have sponsorships, so I record sponsorship scripts separately. Yeah. So my editing process is uh, not not doesn't have a backlog. So I would publish an episode and send the other one in production. So it's like always one week fresh. So I would send over the recording from a while ago with the appropriate sponsorship for the date, and then it will get blended together in an episode right before publication. So it helps to keep the sponsorships within the schedule. Wait, so your sponsors... When somebody sponsors an episode... Are they permanently on that episode for life, or do you have a system to only they've only paid for a, a, a window of time? No, they they just remain there in the audio track forever. <laughs> that's not, got it. Oh no, not a yeah, wizard. I, mean, I guess for that's sure. like <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. That's so. That's like the typical like model for it. And so I, I am curious about the sponsorship stuff. So like, I think you said it was like 2016. It was around then when you started doing it. Like, what was the uh, what was the milestone in terms of like listenership that that you felt like it was a good time or that you were able to start monetizing with, with sponsors? So the show's been consistent for a while and then I don't exactly remember the numbers, but um, I talked to uh, Kurt Elster and he said, oh, you know, to run sponsorships, you just start running sponsorships. <laughs> so <laughs> I All don't right. exactly remember the moment. Uh, maybe I suggested to run a sponsorship for a couple of my friends or because I still do that uh, once in a blue moon. But I somehow, I put up this uh, sponsorship page with the terms and conditions. And somehow I sold a couple of slots. Maybe I reached out to Balsamic because they're one of my friends. And so I started with Balsamic. And then the sponsorship script in the show notes, it has the ending line saying like, you want to get sponsorship? Here's the link. So that always there in every episode. So it's easy to find. And then it started going from there. And then it wasn't very hard to find more, I guess. And I'm quite positive that the listeners, like you have to provide the stats for the advertisers to, uh, to know. But 
it's not like you can't find sponsors for a small show. It's basically you set the price, you decide, and you get them. Um, yeah, I'm looking at your sponsorship page info now, and and yeah, like you, you put a lot of really good information about the the stats and everything. But but like you're saying, you I guess you don't really need. I mean, you you do have a lot of like listenership here, but like other shows don't necessarily need a large audience if it's if it's a targeted if you're just trying to reach a niche audience and and your product is very relevant it, it could still be a good fit i'm sure like i'm very sure that exposing to a very small but very loyal audience is much better than going live on tim ferris show for thousands of dollars so there is always a niche and uh, you can get exposure you can start with some smaller fees and just get the ball rolling that's the key part and so, like, we won't get into all the pricing here, but the way that you do it is, like, you have single episodes and a block of four and a block of eight. Like, how, how varied has the sponsors, have the sponsors been? Like, are you constantly dealing with sales to different sponsors, or do you have just repeat buyers who are there, like, most of the year? Typically, I would have somebody buy a block of four, eight episodes, and then, then they would probably go and find some, some other opportunities. And another uh, tragic thing about podcast sponsorships is it's it's super hard to track attribution. So, mm-hmm. uh, like, even though every sponsor and its recommendation to put up the dedicated landing page to track the UTM tags or whatever, and we do have the custom URLs, still, like, if you hear the brand name, if you're going to go and type it in the browser, who knows, like, how you how you learned about that. <laughs> so... The I'm quite positive that whoever advertises on my show, they either don't care about the numbers, or if they do, they probably observe low numbers. That's the reality. Right. And you mentioned that you pre-record the, the ad spots. How do you decide like the structure? So are you doing ads at like pre-roll, so before the whole episode, or like mid-roll in the middle? And how many different sponsors do you include in each episode? I have one pre-roll, so I have a short intro announcing the guest. Then there is the sponsorship script, which is about 30 seconds uh, or 40 words or something like that. And then we just continue the conversation. That's all That's all for me. But I'm sure you can get creative there, <laughs> depending on your format. Got it. Got it. Very cool, Jane. Well, you know, you're you know continuously up to some really interesting things here. And, and it's just been awesome to see, you know, you and Benedict's uh, growth with, with, uh, user list and of course the ui breakfast podcast i'm a listener and, and that's been re- you know it's re- it's really cool to hear like some like behind the scenes of what it's like to run a podcast i mean i'm trying to do it here with with this productized podcast but you're right like not enough people are talking about that behind you know everybody's listening to podcasts but nobody knows what really goes into uh into actually producing it and making it happen so this has been cool uh, I feel like we barely scratched the surface because I have so much more to share. Like this minute details how to like have a giant spreadsheets and put your guests there and how to do all other technical things. But yeah, that might be one of those little books to write there. But podcast yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> industry is definitely ramping up. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. We'll need to get you back on the show at some point. <laughs> thanks so much for having. It was exciting to share. Cool. All right. Thanks, Jane. All right. Did that give you something to think about? If it did, let me know on Twitter. I'm at CastJam. If you want to find show notes on this or any of the other episodes or my weekly newsletter with new content, head over to productizeandscale.com. Now, if you haven't already, a five-star review in iTunes, that would go a long way to helping other folks find the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time.